Our text is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. The text that we'll cover today is 1 to 15, but I'll read only uh, 1 through 11 right now. 2 Samuel 6, starting at verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the name of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray please uh, guide uh, our minds and especially guide my uh, words that though we marshal many uh, topics and thoughts and we'll flip around through scripture, uh, that you would guide us, Lord, and that we would not be lost, that we would not be bored, but that we would be enthralled by what's happening and by what you meant by it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So, from the top of your heads, do you remember the big number that I mentioned in verse 1 without looking at your Bible? Yeah, 30,000 people. 30,000 people. Now, you might think that Israel was a big place, but really when you've studied it and you compare it to Nebraska, it was a fairly small place. Where David went to get the ark was about six miles from where his throne was. That's like us driving out to Bennington, or walking, I guess. The terrain was a bit different. It was hilly there. It was hilly in Jerusalem, mountainous even. And so they had to get down out of the mountains in kiriath Jerem and then come over to Jerusalem, but still not very far away. And so you have David calling together 30,000 people to go out to Bennington. Can you imagine 30,000 people in that little town? That's kiriath Jerem was probably no bigger than Bennington, and here they are. They're all there. If we are here at Legacy, Jerusalem, Bennington is Kirithshirim. So now all those people gather. I've been to these Labor Day parades in downtown Omaha. I've never seen 30,000 people at anything in Omaha. 
Even the baseball games, I, doubt, I don't even know, I, I doubt the College World Series draws 30,000 people. I don't think that stadium can hold that many people. So we're talking about an awful lot of people. Now, I'm not saying that this event was like comparable to a Labor Day parade, but I'm just saying that just in sheer volumes of people. So Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. The anger of the Lord was aroused, and God struck him, and he died. Uzzah was one of Abinadab's sons. Abinadab was the owner of the home in which the ark had been for 20 years. So Uzzah was probably somewhat used to that ark. I don't know if he'd ever had opportunity to touch it before, but he did this day, and he died. So now, what Uzzah meant to do was so helpful in the situation. It would have been for anyone walking along the side of the ark and see that happen, it would have been instinctive for any of us to do what it is that he did. Any of us could have died. Any of us could have been Uzzah that died. That could have been our son that was killed. So Uzzah was probably not uh, an older man. He was a younger man still living in his parents' home. Now, what God did by comparison to what Uzzah did seems hurtful, seems wrong, seems shocking. And if you don't study it out, it seems inexplicable. And so you will see the death of Uzzah on the internet as an illustration of God's... You can't trust God. Why would anybody do such an evil thing? What he did to Uzzah was wrong. What he did was evil. And so people will use that as justification for saying that I don't like your God. Your God isn't worthy of my love and respect and worship. Now I need to back up through time, both in terms of the concept of the priesthood in Israel at that time, and also in terms of the civil law that was in place at that time, because both had gone through tumultuous changes. So now at this time, we had no temple. No temple had been built yet, and so what they had to house the ark was what Moses had built to house the ark, the tabernacle, the tent. The tabernacle and the ark, you would think, would always be co-located. But yet, when you study out Scripture, it doesn't appear that they were always co-located during this period. So it wasn't uncommon, even prior to the ark being lost to the Philistines, for the ark and the tabernacle to be separated because the judges during that time, they just weren't consistent in their worship of God. So now we back up about 80 years before what we're talking about, before Uzzah's death. And so we go back to the time of the judges. We've gone back in time to the time of the judges. And Eli is judge. Eli's 98 years old. He's very big. The, the Bible describes him as obese. And he's sitting at the city gate, waiting, waiting in anxiety for word from what was going on because his two sons had taken the ark out with the Israelites to battle against the Philistines. But Eli's sons were wicked men, and they did not know the Lord. That's what the Bible says. They did not know the Lord. 
Let me read to you from 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. I'll start at 11. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. This is the young boy Samuel. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And then it goes on to describe what Eli's wicked priest sons, very powerful position they're in, what they would do. They would go around to people when they're sacrificing uh, animals to the Lord and they are uh, burning off the fat. That was by design. They would grab the meat before the fat has burned off. The, the men would complain. They would say, wait, wait until the fat is burned off. They knew the law. The priests knew the law too. They said, no, we will not wait. And if you try to stop us, we'll, we'll uh, basically take it anyway. It also said that they slept with the women who were at the door of the tabernacle. So now, why do you think those women were at the door of the tabernacle? They're probably poor women. They don't have a lot of meat to eat for them or their families like these priests do. And these priests then could use that, the position, their powerful position of authority and influence and advantage to get sexual favors from these women. It isn't that these women were prostitutes. It isn't, it isn't that they were there to enjoy this. They were being exploited by these wicked priests. Now, a prophet shows up, had already shown up a few years earlier and prophesied their deaths. They were going to die for their wickedness, and Eli was going to witness this because he had never restrained them. He allowed them to do what they were doing. I believe Eli loved the Lord, yet he did not restrain his wicked sons. So the Philistines defeat Israel in the field. The ark is taken, and Hophni and Phinehas die. They attempted to carry that ark into battle with their enemies. Just as it had warded off all their enemies in the wilderness during all those wanderings, they wanted it to do the same. And yet they had presumptuously uh, done this, and God uh, rebuked them for it by allowing the ark to be lost. Now, these were dark times then. You've lost the ark to your enemy, and yet this ark had been a symbol of your strength as a people for hundreds of years, and now they've lost it. So Samuel, Eli died that day. Word came back. He fell and died, uh, emblematic of the death that these people deserved, not the ark. So now Samuel arose. Uh, Samuel was not a Levite by birth, but he was young boy, three-year-old, that had been given to Hannah as a promise and, and uh, ended her barrenness. And so he was a Nazarite given over to the Lord. And here he was ministering in God's presence. But his sons grow up and are evil as well. And so the elders complain to Samuel. We want a king like the neighboring nations do because your sons are wicked and we don't want them to rule over us. So God... Samuel went to God. God said, give them their king. God had already foretold what would happen when they resorted to a monarchy. Your kings will take the best of your land. They will take the best of your sons and daughters. They will uh, take you for all of the money that you can uh, give to them, and they will uh, run roughshod over you, essentially. But... 
Saul is selected as king. And I think even Samuel, and I've talked about this in the past, even Samuel was impressed with God's choice. Now here is a king we can all get behind. He's humble. He's towering above everybody. He's enormous. But that didn't last long, did it? His humility ended very, very quickly when his power went to his head and he started doing exactly what God had told him he would do. He had given them a king just like the neighboring countries, a king that would tyrannize them. David was then anointed as a mere teenager, and yet it was years before he could conceivably move into a position of authority because Saul wasn't going to give it up. And yet David refused to kill him. We all know that story. Phil preached through it a few years ago. So one fine day, Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. By this time, uh, David has left the country. He's down in uh, Philistine. The king there has given him the city of Ziklag. He's been out of Israel for at least a year. But now, what has happened? They go without a king. So the, the whole nation of Israel, including Israel, northern and southern kingdom, because there's no sense of that yet, but they now have no king. So the people of Judah come to David and say, we want you to be our king. And so he agrees to that. So he is established in Hebron as the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom, though, has not fallen yet. Judah proper. So now what we're running into is civil war. We thought it was potentially civil war when David was merely anointed king and Saul was persecuting him, but now we've got all out and out civil war. So we've got all these brothers, all these tribes fighting once, uh, amongst one another. And 2 Samuel 3.1 says this, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And Phil preached about this. Ishbosheth, as the titular head of this kingdom that was passed down to him from Saul, ostensibly he reigned for over seven years. But in reality, he reigned for two because Abner, his commander in chief, really ruled in his stead. Ishbosheth was a puppet king, he was too weak to rule. I'll get to that a little bit more. But first, I want to talk about David. David now. He knows the Lord. You can't say of him what was said of Hophni and Phinehas. David knows the Lord. He's known the Lord since he was a boy. Now he is king in Hebron at 30. And here we have him coming into a kingdom, being sought out to be made a king of all the country. God had blessed him immensely, had protected him throughout the time that Saul was persecuting him. And then he led Judah for those seven years from Hebron. Now, Ishbosheth, even though he's a weak man, he's still a man. He's a proud man. He confronts Abner on the fact that Abner has taken one of his father, Saul's concubines, and made her his own. This was probably not on the sly. This was very obvious. So Ishbosheth was humiliated. He confronted Abner. Abner runs him down. How dare you uh, confront me on this? And so then he immediately goes to David and said, David, you want the kingdom? You've got the kingdom. I will deliver it into your hands. Joab finds out, and you've got to re-listen to the sermons that Philip preached on this if you haven't listened to them. If you weren't here back in 2012, they are great. 
because you also see weaknesses in David's character through this. But so Joab murders Abner so that he can't take his place as commander-in-chief of the entire army. And Ishbosheth then loses heart. He's immediately murdered by two of the captains of his army, and they bring his head to David. Hey, look at what we have. And then they're, of course, executed for their crime of murder. The Philistines then are becoming aware of this. Uh-oh, now the elders of Israel come down to David. They waste no time. They say, Ishbosheth's dead. We have no, no king. We want you as our king. David moves his throne to Jerusalem. He kicks the uh, Jebusites out. Now he's got the stronghold. He's on this mountaintop. He's got the high uh, land in that area. The Philistines immediately attack him twice. They know he's like a tick. They've been fighting this guy for a long time. They want him dead now. Of course, that doesn't happen. So now, I want to... I'm kind of going to bounce around from the, the kingdom, what's going on with the judges and the kings, to what's going on, meanwhile, with the priesthood and the ark and the, and the covenant and the tabernacle. So now... During the time of the judges, for hundreds of years, the ark had resided in mainly two places, Bethel and Shiloh. It's not easy to tell exactly why or when the ark moved and whether it was moved properly. We just don't know. But tabernacle worship appears to have been maintained at points in time in there. But yet, even during Samuel's day, he would go around to four different places and, and sacrifice to the Lord on the high places. It doesn't appear that tabernacle worship, the sacrificial, uh, sacrificing of that animal in front of the tabernacle, you got the labor, you got the altar, you got the, all the... None of that appears to have been going on, it, at least it appears to me. So about 80 years earlier then, with the fall of Eli, the, the, the ark had fallen into the Philistine hands. God is rebuking them for the way that they're playing fast and loose, very cavalier with what he had mandated as the proper way to worship him. And so Hophni and Phinehas died, Eli dies, but it goes into the Philistine camp. And I'm going to get to that more later. That's very interesting. But I want to comment now on David. So see, he's living... 80 years after the ark had been lost briefly to the Philistines and been returned, he knows the importance of the ark. And let me look to that in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read verses 1 through 3. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send to our brethren everywhere who are left in all of the land of Israel and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we have not inquired of it since the days of Saul. So it's been seven years since Saul has died. And David is very sensitive about the fact that they've abandoned all pretense of worshiping God aright. If there had been right worship before, it certainly hasn't been happening for seven years. And David, that's on his heart. He loves the Lord. He wants the ark to be restored to its position of prominence in their nation. So he took immediate action. Now, you might say there's something self-serving here, too. He is a king. He obviously has ambition. And so he wants to co-locate the ark with his throne. He wants to have greater control over it, but he also wants the blessing. Now, we've already covered the text up through 11, 
And so that speaks all up to where he's failed in this attempt. And I want to share why he's failed. Uh, This was shared a few years ago, but I think it bears repeating. It's in Numbers 4. I'm going to read a bit here, and so I, I don't want you to get too bored. Try to focus. But it's Numbers 4, and so we know Numbers and Leviticus aren't the most exciting books in the Bible, but please, hear it out and listen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, the sons of Kohath, of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50. So there's this range of 20 years. All who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come. They shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. The very first thing the priests do is come in and cover the ark. They don't want the ark being seen by anyone other than the priests. Then they shall put it Put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. So they have three cloths on this thing, and they shall insert its poles. On the table of showbread, they shall spread the blue cloth and put it. Now they go through all these details of what they're going to do with all these things. And then let me just skip ahead a little bit. All the utensils, all that stuff. Then they shall put on it on all of its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, they're talking about the altar, the basins and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. See, it starts out talking about the Kohathites, here and here. But who does all this stuff in the middle? The priests, the priests alone. The priests cover all that stuff. They cover the table, the altar, the candlesticks, all the utensils used, the altar, all that stuff is not even to be seen, let alone touched by anybody else other than the priests, the Aaronic priesthood. So you just have to realize how particular God was about this. So six mistakes that David made in that first attempt to move the ark. First, the ark was to be covered. It was uncovered. Second, it was to be carried. He had it sitting on a cart just like the Philistines when they took it. Third, it was to be carried by the Kohathites, not Levites, Kohathites. So they're a sub-family of the Levites. The ark was to be carried by Kohathites using poles. They weren't allowed to touch the ark. They had to use those poles to carry them over their shoulders. The ark was to be carried by sanctified Kohathites using poles. Numbers 8 explains the process of sanctification for the Levites in all that they did in support of this. And then 6, the ark was not to be touched. And I've mentioned that already, but that's a sixth failure here. Now, before we go on to the next four verses and discuss the, uh, the failure or the success of moving it successfully the second time, I want to discuss what happened when the ark went into captivity in Philistia. Because I think this is interesting to compare that with the first attempt of David to move it. So this story is in 1 Samuel 4. And so in 1 Samuel 4, uh, we see that the Philistines feared the God of the Israelites. When they knew that the Israelite army had the ark in their camp, they lost hope. 
Oh, no. God's going to kill us all. But then they said, strengthen one another or you'll become Israel's servants. And then they went out and fight. And lo and behold, they won. They won this victory. So now they have the ark. So what do the Philistines do? Well, see, their God, Dagon, has now triumphed over Yahweh. So obviously, their God is more powerful. So the first thing they do is they take the ark into their temple of Dagon. And what happens? The very next morning, they find Dagon prostrate before the ark. They set Dagon back up on his pedestal. The next day, what happens? They find again Dagon prostrate before the ark, but now his hands and his head have been cut off. God has executed Dagon. He's essentially turned him into a sacrifice at his feet. So they get the picture something's not right, right? This happened immediately. This didn't take months. This was immediately. But this then took some time. Then his hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. He ravaged them and struck them with tumors. So now the people of Ashdod are experiencing this. These tumors are getting worse and worse. And so the, the lords of the Philistines get together. Ashdod says, hey, who else wants this? So see, the first next city, I think, wanted it. Gath. We can handle it. We can handle it. You Ashdod people, you're weak. You know, you can't handle this. So they take it. They take it to them to Gath. He struck. Now this is interesting. He brought a great destruction upon Gath. And look who he struck. The men of the city, small and great. See, he struck the people of Ashdod. I assume from that it could have been anybody, everybody, male, female, young, old. But who did he strike in Gath? The men of the city, small and great. He's striking those that are making the decisions. He's relieving those. He's, he's relieving those. God is not striking the innocent now. He's focusing in on who has made these decisions. So they start crying out. Now, I've got to read you this. This is so cool. 1 Samuel 5.10. I'll start at verse 9. This is about Gath. So it was after they had carried it away to Gath that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron, as it was arriving in the city, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. No one's even died yet. There was a great destruction, yes. There were tumors, yes. But it doesn't say that anybody had died. But the Ekronites saw what was coming. And it did come. So see, while they're dealing with the, the discussions among the lords of the Philistines, the Ekronites did not prevent the ark from coming into their city. They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So see, there was this increasing... Now, it was only there seven months. It was in Philist, the Philistine territory for seven months in those three cities. We don't know how long in each. But there was this increase of penalty by God for what they had done and what they were continuing to do. The first people, I believe, to touch the ark didn't die. 
Isn't that amazing? God had said to Moses centuries earlier that you are not to touch this. Only the Kohathites are to, to handle it when it's covered, but only the priests. But here we are with an evil enemy people who God is allowing to live repeatedly, day after day, week after week, month after month, but with increasing penalty for their obstinance. So they then realize we cannot handle this God. We want this God out of our territory. He had ravaged Ashdod. He brought great destruction upon Gath, and he brought deadly destruction upon uh, the last city. What was the last city? Started with an E. Ekron, very good. I know it's spelled age, but I couldn't remember the name of the city. So see, what did the Philistines know of God and his law? I would say little or nothing. But what would God have expected them to know of his word and his law? Very little or nothing. By contrast then, what the Israelites know at this time of God and his law? Apparently, very little or nothing. <laughs> what did God expect them to know of him and his law? A lot. He expected them to be living by it. They weren't. So he brought immediate, immediate rebuke upon them for what they'd done. When Uzzah touched that ark, zap. So see, God was merciful to these Philistines, the enemies of his chosen people. But it reminds me of earlier when Joshua comes to the angel of the Lord, says, are you for us or our enemies? What does he say? What's the one word answer? No. I'm for neither of you. I'm here on the Lord's business. So see, that is our God. Our God has high expectations of his children and those that are supposed to know better. Their ignorance was inexcusable. Now, let's read about the second attempt in 2 Samuel 6. So we'll start reading at verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now let me just give you an aside here. Obed-Edom the Gittite meant he was from Gath, the very city that had suffered great destruction 80 years earlier based on the ark being in their city. And yet here is a Gittite, a, a man from Gath, being blessed by God by having it in his home. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. The version here in 2 Samuel 6 says nothing about why this time nobody died. And so you might think, oh, it's because this time nobody touched it, right? That's what you might be tempted to believe, but that's entirely wrong because in, second, in first Corinthians or First Chronicles, we have an illustration of why. Okay, so let's read 1 Chronicles 15, 1 and 2. 
David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. See, 1 Chronicles 13 chronicles out what I'd read, verses 1 through 11. And then 1 Chronicles 15 covers just that little portion that I just read. And yet 1 Chronicles 15 is 29 verses. The writer of Chronicles goes into great detail to describe how David transported the ark that second time. I'm not going to read it all for you. It's very detailed, but if you want to. But he mentions all the Levites by name, all the Kohathites by name that have a part in this properly. He mentions all the singers and all of the things by name. But see, David finally has acknowledged the critical role. He has done his homework. The first time, and, and the, see, the title of this message is Unbridled Enthusiasm. That was David's first attempt to move the ark. How can God judge him for making a mistake in that? when all he wanted was to restore right worship in Jerusalem. What did the scripture say? It said that David was angry, angry about Uzzah's death, and that he was afraid of God. Not the good fear that was talked about earlier, but the bad fear that was talked about earlier. He suddenly didn't trust God. He no longer knew who this God was who had been blessing him for 20-plus years. And so he figured it out, finally, he figured it out. He'd been winging it for 20 years. Where did he go to figure it out? Where well, we must go to figure it out. And then he assembles all of these people. David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark to its place which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled. Who did he assemble? In verse 4. David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. Do you know who he chose... In our text, 30,000 choice men of Israel. Do you think they were Levites and Kohathites and priests? I think not. He was grabbing all of the people that he values, that who have been with him for 20 years to help him, all the elders of all the different tribes. He paid no attention to differentiating the fact that God wants Levites to do what it is that he's telling them to do. He wants priests, the ones sacrificing, all this stuff. So now he's doing it right. So see, David called the proper order in verse 11. And David called Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He said to them, you are the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I've prepared for it. So now he's doing it right. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So see, the bridle, the bridle that he lacked in his enthusiasm is the word. Phil had a different term for it when he preached on this back in December 2012. What is the term that we in the modern Reformed Church refer to as that bridle? It's a phrase that's very popular with Reformed people, but some Reformed people hate it. They hate it, and they fight against it. They kick against it. It's called the regulative principle of worship. And David was apparently unaware of it, but he made himself aware of it in a three-month study period. 
And then he did it right. He did it all right. Now, Phil preached on this, like I said, and he preached on a lot of these topics. We really have to uh, focus on that. When, I was, when our family was out in California just after Presbytery, uh, we went to a PCA church that following Sunday. And I was so disheartened to have the first prayer, the congregational prayer, the, the, the prayer that, that uh, Ray gave as we, we did this morning, the prayer of invocation was spoken by this young woman. And I could barely hear her. She's speaking really fast, and she's got this high-pitched voice, and I was just cringing in my heart. I thought, what an offense to the Lord. Now, is that because I think we are right and they are wrong? Absolutely. They're wrong. It's not that I think women are less than men. It's not that I think women don't have a role in worship. But they certainly ought not to be up front here, addressing people, the whole body, leading them in prayer. It just broke my heart. So see, do we regard women as inferior to men? No. Less capable? No. But there are roles that God has prescribed for us. And what's funny, what I really find ironic about this, and I'm trying to use it the right way, is that in our culture, the whole Christian church is up in arms about Men and women and bathrooms and all this stuff. But most of those churches are violating God's word. How can I take them seriously? They have higher regard for public morality than they do for the very God they say they're worshiping. They're hypocrites. They're ignorant hypocrites. And I have no patience with them. What they're doing is wrong. And I wish I'd had the courage to just confront this guy. But it's my daughter's church, and I really didn't want to be making a ruckus there. I'm just like, oh, who are you? I'm Rachel's father. Oh, we love Rachel. Yes, we do too. Thank you. Have a nice day. So that's pretty much how it went. So see, Uzzah's death speaks to the regular principle of worship, but it speaks to everything. It speaks to our honoring scripture. Regular principle worship goes so far, but the, word, the whole word of God must be employed. And so we can't, just because we think we're carrying out the regular principle of worship correctly, exonerate ourselves from learning about Uzzah. Uzzah's death speaks more to us about who should be doing what, about what we should be doing, honoring all of God's word. There is a phrase, it's not a Bible quote, but I do believe it is a biblical principle. The phrase is, to whom much is given shall much be required. And so Jesus, I believe, spoke this truth very simply when he gave those parables, giving out the money, the economic parables, and these people either squandering or not investing, not properly acting upon the gifts they'd received. So see, when we are given much, as we've been given much, especially here, I believe, we've been given Phil. Phil is a valuable resource. Ask anybody in the CPC. When we left the PCA, I mean, that's, I think, the main reason that the elders of the PCA were upset with us, because they were losing Phil. He's a very good resource for understanding the Bible and applying it to life. So, see, God rewards some knowledge in our heads with more knowledge as we seek to build it. He rewards some obedience with more obedience, some wisdom with more wisdom, some triumphs over temptation with more and greater triumphs over temptation. He has to see you at work 
You are an aspect of your own sanctification. You must work. And so that's what God wants you doing. We, uh, Phil spoke of contentment earlier, and I have it here in the, in the outline. God rewards his faithful children with contentment and joy, I had written. And there are so many wealthy people in this country that are not content, and they're certainly not joyful. But yet God wants us to be filled with contentment and joy. Yet that is only possible, especially for a Christian, uh, through proper uh, recognition of God and his word. Uh, we can't hope to get there. There is no other path for us to get to true contentment and joy. I have used this proverb at work, uh, and I give attribution uh, that it's a proverb in the Bible, uh, one of Solomon's, but I've loved it forever. It's, in all labor, there is profit. In all labor, there is profit. That's from Proverbs 14.23. And Paul, writing this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Why is it that God would approve of us. We're perfected in Christ. I can't sin, right? I can't sin. Sin means nothing to me. I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. I can do anything I want. I can be, I can be rude. I can be obnoxious. I can be just a blithering idiot, and yet I'm still going to heaven. It seems unfair, I agree, but it's true. We just don't want to prove that point over and over and over again, do we? We want to learn from our idiocy, from our obnoxiousness. We want to be sanctified and made holy, made to be that much closer in character to that of Christ. That's what our lives on this earth are all about. But so to be ready in the day of battle, we must be prepared. And the only way we can prepare for the day of battle that tests our character and we're fine wanting or not, we're fine to be an idiot or not, obnoxious or not, uh, ignorant of God's law or not, uh, we must immerse ourselves in his word. I want to share one more thing uh, that I really didn't have any outline, but it came up during the discussion, and that was a very interesting uh, illustration as I was reading the commentaries. When the ark was lost in battle, the ark represents God. You know, he dwells between the cherubim. The cherubim are on the ark cover, and God is dwelling there. That's, that's what his word says. And so that's where he chooses to be to interact with his people, the Israelites. But when the ark was lost, it was very humbling to the Israelites. But think about it from God's perspective. What was God doing by allowing the ark to be lost? God was sacrificing himself. See, so through that loss, through that, that uh, uh, loss in the battle and the loss of the ark, it's illustrative of Christ, what Christ has done. So the ark was lost. Oh, no, all hope is lost. That's what everybody thought. That's what the apostles thought when Christ died. Oh, no, we thought he was the one. It appears he's not. That's what their human reasoning told them. They couldn't see beyond that. Yet, God fought their battle for them. 
He made him, the Philistines, kick him out of their country. We don't want this God. This God is way too powerful. I don't know how you Israelites can deal with this, but you take him. So see, that is illustrative of Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf to draw us back in. And then he returns to us. And through that simple death, one death, the whole country begins to be revitalized. I mean, they enter into an incredible period of spiritual and earthly uh, wealth and vitality. And it was because of David's heart, and yet it wasn't quite right. He didn't have the bridle on, and God required him to put it on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, without it, we would be lost. We would not know how to serve you. We would not know right from wrong. We would not have anything to rely upon other than human reason, which is so whimsical and so capricious in what it chooses to value from year to year. So we thank you, Lord, that your word points us to the truth. We thank you for the fact that we can rely upon it to be a constant and steady and ever-present guide to us what is right, what is wrong, what should we do about this or that. Lord, we know that you will master and now do master the evils of our world, and we pray that you would grant us patience, that you would have us have courage to never fear in doing the right thing, and instead to always be uh, ready and prepared to give an answer to those that are losing hope as to the hope that rests within us. We thank you, Lord, that Christ has fought our battles for us, but yet he wants us to remain in the war, that it is our war as well. We give you thanks, Father, for your kindness, for your presence, above all things, for the work of your spirit in our hearts. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.